Today, we are going to continue in our study in Hebrews, and it is so appropriate that we're going to do that. The timing of God in arranging for us to be focused on the topic that we're on today as we study through this letter. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to take out something and write down a quick response to this question. It could be one word, it could be a phrase that you can hold on to, but personally, for yourself, Answer this question. What is the most difficult thing you've faced in your life? What is the most difficult thing you have faced in your life? The most impossible situation you can remember that has touched your life? Don't you hate those kind of questions? What is the thing you hate the most in all the world? What is the thing you love more than anything else? It's like, oh, man, I don't, this is so final. <laughs> Do the best you can. Think for a moment. Most impossible situation, the most difficult thing you have faced in your life. <clears throat> now, as we go back into this letter, last week Peter was taking us through a study of the person of Christ. And we are we are studying, if you're joining us already in progress here, the program is we are we're studying about faith, but we're doing it within the context of a particular letter that's in the Bible, the letter to the Hebrews. And there is a, a strategy concerning faith that's in this letter. And I want to go back and, and have us revisit the need for this strategy. But last week um, Peter touched on the issue and we had kind of laid some thought down for this a few weeks ago. When it comes to faith and living by faith, which everybody does, and Christians in particular are are called to do it in a particular way, but what needs to be in front of us is that the most important thing about our faith isn't our faith. It is the object of our faith. If you believe the wrong thing, you can have the greatest faith ever in the world, But if you believe in something that is destined to fail, then your faith will not profit you at all. So it's not your faith that's so important. It's the object of your faith that is so important. And what Peter talked about last week was bringing an aspect to the Christian faith that understands accurately the person of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, and don't assume that you are just because you live in America... If you're a Christian here today, it is because you you believe accurately in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you get either one of those wrong, you are not a Christian. It doesn't matter whether you're sincere, whether you can spell the word Christian. If you get the person of Christ wrong and he's not who the Bible declares him to be, and you believe him to be something else, then you're not a Christian. If you believe in something about him besides what the Bible presents as the work that he did. You believe that he did a lot of great things. But the work that we're going to look at today doesn't make your list, then you're not a Christian. And that's very important. That has ramifications for how you and I live today. It has eternal ramifications for our lives as well. But when we look in this letter to the Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me for a moment. Remember, this letter is addressing people who are in need. The need in their life in this moment is that life has served up circumstances that for them is causing their faith to teeter. 
there's the potential in this group of people for their faith to fail. And the, the letter is designed, its design is to bolster faith. And what we want to study in this is because you and I face the reality that at moments, don't you feel like your faith isn't going to make it? Don't you feel like sometimes it's not up to par? It's not going to be able to face that situation. Or I'm discouraged in my life. I've become despairing in my life. I've become despondent. I'm not responding to life. I'm just kind of withdrawing from life. I'm withdrawing from people. I just, just want to be left alone. I'm wearied by walking through life. Now, whatever it is that's doing that for you, let's find ourselves in this letter for a moment. Because this letter actually has a remedy for us. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now, I'm jumping right in the middle of a thought here. So can I just give you the mood of this statement? The mood of this statement is, come on! That's the mood of it. Okay? Come on, guys! Let us hold fast. Now, there's reasons for us to do that. I'm skipping all the reasons. But we're going to come back to that. Just want you to see, when we jump into the Bible encouraging us, it's going to give us reasons, and those reasons are very important, but we're going to find today the reasons are the person and work of Jesus Christ. So verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I mean, some of you guys are just, you're avoiding being in fellowship. You just don't have the energy to do it. You're not encouraged. You're not excited about God. You're not excited about your future. So why would you be excited about being together with other people who are following God? And so it becomes something that you're kind of beginning to pull back from. That's what he's trying to help these guys with. But encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near skip down to verse 32 but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is, this is a pleading. The Holy Spirit is pleading through this writer to people who are going through difficulty to hang in there, keep going, keep believing. You have great reason to keep doing that. But in the midst of that, there's reasons why these people are genuinely discouraged. There's real difficulty in life. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there is. Life ain't easy all the time. It's not easy for people who decide they want to be related to God. It's not easy for those who want to have a walk with God. You, know, you sign on to walk with God. It doesn't mean life all of a sudden gets downgraded to become it's easy now. You know, friction has decreased, and now it's like ice skating. Just scoot through life, no problems. That hadn't been my experience, and I'm sure it hadn't been yours. Life is still hard. 
and maybe you find yourself, I'll put a little list of questions there. If we were, if we were the Hebrews and we're not, we're not living in the same setting as these guys are, but we're facing our own issues. So life has touched them in a particular way. Life is touching us in a particular way. So do you find yourself in this list? Do you need to be stirred up? I mean, you find yourself just lethargic. Just you're not enthusiastic. You're not here today bubbling full of energy. Just something needs to get stirred up inside of you. Are you lacking the energy and the desire for fellowship? And for believe that's a huge issue. God's made you a part of the body of Christ. What a huge assignment. The Bible explains to us you've become a finger or a toe or an eye, a functioning member of something that's the most important thing on the planet. And if I'm not showing up for that, well, then that says a lot about me. If I don't have the energy for that, if I'm just tolerating that. You know, I'm in church every couple of weeks or so, you know, whenever it works for my schedule. Listen, it's saying something about how I feel about my life when that's the case. Are you having a hard struggle with suffering like these guys were? A hard struggle with suffering. Prolonged relationship struggle. That's, that's just wreaking havoc in your own heart. Physical health issues that you've been facing for a while in your life. Just very discouraging. A prolonged struggle with suffering. Are you facing public reproach? Now, most of us aren't facing anything that looks like what these guys went through. I don't know anybody. I've not, I've not met a person, not in this country. I've met people in uh, Mexico who have experienced this, and some of the guys who have been to Russia have experienced this when meeting them. But I've never met an American who, when they, when they got saved, the government came in and, and seized their property. And there was public reproach, and, and there was a, a, you were being put out on the street. You know, I, I've never met that for anybody who's become a Christian here. But, you know, public reproach touches us in different ways. And it may really, for some of us, not have anything to do with Christianity. Just, we just got fear of man in our life. Anything that happens publicly, anything that thrusts me in front of people for their opinions to get on me, it's like, oh, this is killing me. You know who you are? People drive you crazy. It's like you got an itch when you get around them. Have you lost property hmm? or suffered meaningful setback? Well, that, that one fits in New Orleans, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm just talking to Eddie about, you know, he's talking to me about a friend who, you know, they had, they had water in their house up in their attic, you know, thinking, well, how much worse can this get? Well, he has a friend who had it worse. You know, how do you get water worse than in your attic? I guess you can't even see the property that you own anymore. We've known a little bit of something about setbacks and people losing things. Now, all that stuff added together can create an environment for us where you feel discouraged, where you feel even perhaps despairing. You're losing hope. Despondent. You're not responding to life anymore. Now, is that you? Everybody do this. Look at the person that you came with. Tell them whether that's you or not. See, because the person that you came with knows whether you're lying. <laughs> Right? I mean, I look at you and y'all can all look back at me and it's like, ah, no, not really. That you look over at your husband and he's going, it's you. <laughs> it's not me, but it is you, okay? You are so down and out right now. Well, here's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves picking up a letter to the Hebrews and this letter is designed to fix us. That's what it's designed to do. Are you discouraged, despairing, despondent? The letter of the Hebrews is masterfully crafted 
and designed to fix us. And when it goes to fix us, here's the direction it's going to head in. If you want to just cheat and turn over here to chapter 12. Like in verse 3, it continues that, that thought of those who have been worn out by life. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, what's the remedy? The remedy is consider him. You downhearted? You discouraged? Consider him. Right before that, we have that, that verse that we've many of us have held on to. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This entire book is about teaching people how to look to Jesus. You know, we've heard that phrase a hundred thousand times. If you've been in church for very long, you know that, that if you get into a bind and you get around your friends who are Christians, people are going to tell you something that kind of sounds like you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Keep my eyes on Jesus. A picture of him? Spell out his name? Just oh, Jesus. Just say his name over and again. Just Jesus, 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 Jesus. I, I guess you can do all that. But when I look in the letter of Hebrews here, I see, I see divine engineering. I see strategic design. I see a book that spent from the get-go an entire, all the chapters preceding that statement has been leading us and teaching us, here's how to look at Jesus. Look at his person and look at his work. And when we get to, to this today, and we're going to study the work of Christ, really the work of Christ really begins from the beginning of creation. Uh, but when we, when we get here today, we're going to focus our attention, uh, especially this weekend, on the work of Christ as it regards the cross and the resurrection. Now, if you will, the word that would theologically contain that work is the atonement. We are studying the atonement. And there's a word that you wonder, okay, there's a 50-cent word, the atonement. What on earth does that mean? How many of you would think that if you're, if you're discouraged and depressed and you go into a bookstore, where would you go find answers for your situation? Or would you go into the self-help section, the psychology section perhaps, how to deal with discouragement? How many of you would, would walk in there and if you found this book, a book on the atonement, you'd pick that one up and you'd go to Barnes and Noble's checkout and you'd buy that one. I'm discouraged. You don't understand. I'm, I just don't feel like getting up in the morning, man. You know what I'm talking about? Here, I got a book on the atonement for you. <laughs> How many of us would go, no, you don't get it, man. That's not what I need to hear. I mean, I need some help. I'm, I'm struggling. What's amazing, that's where this book goes. These people were struggling. They needed help. And it says here, you, you guys need a very, very clear view of the atonement. You need to see clearly the person and the work of Christ. Now, what if, what if God knows that when I really do see clearly the person and the work of Christ, what's going to come into my heart is going to be greater faith. 
And with greater faith is going to come increased hope. I'm going to begin, as this Bible talks about faith, I'm going to begin to see things that are favorably working on my behalf that right now I'm thinking nothing's going my way. Nothing's going my way. But I'm going to get all of a sudden have eyes to see in faith things that are going to produce hope in me. And with hope is going to lift despair and joy is going to come into my life. What if that's how God's designed us to respond to being discouraged and being depressed? Let me tell you something. If you don't see that in reading the Bible and you don't realize the Bible is designed to get you there, then what you're going to do with this information is you're going to set it in the religious section of your life. You talk about it in a covenant group, probably nowhere else. It's never the subject of conversation elsewhere. You read it, it's completely acceptable in here to say all problems, all problems significant in life are right here. But when you walk out and you face the real world, because you've not seen, this book is specifically designed to solve our lives' problems. Then when we walk out there, we're going we're gonna to use a different set of information. So this is why so many Christians could tell you very little about the atonement while telling you a lot about pop psychology, psychological labels. Well, I'm this, or I've got that. Well, they said, I've got this. I saw the doctor, and he said, blah, blah, blah. And we know all about that. We know lots about solving the elements of our lives through financial planning and investments. We know how to create recreation in our lives. We know lots about sports teams. So why do we know all that stuff? I mean, it, the New Orleans was an experiment in trying to be encouraged in the last couple of years, wasn't it? And living in New Orleans, what was the most encouraging thing that happened in this city over the last year? The New Orleans Saints. Wasn't it? I mean, come on. People who were depressed and down and out found some lift and encouragement in a football team winning. Well, not just any football team. Our football team. <laughs> our terrible, stinky, normally football team uh, surprising us all. So miracles do happen, and that was one. But how many of us would have run to the atonement in order to find encouragement? Just wouldn't have done it. And what a danger the church creates when we don't find God's answers sufficient for us. You ever talk to somebody who's got some serious issues going on in their life, serious issues, and you begin to tell them about the Bible, you begin to explain life from the Bible, and you kind of get this response like, you don't understand. You know, almost the attitude here, and if you've ever done this, I, I, I hope this is a razor cutting across you. What you're saying is, you don't understand. I, don't, I, don't, I have real problems, okay? I don't need kindergarten answers. Oh, oh, really? Who would you rather listen to? Do you understand, this is a book about real life from a real God who really has something to say. And mysteriously, because we're a little thick-headed, we think that you solve problems by staring at this. When God turns around and says, no, you solve problems by staring at this in your life. And we get convinced that, no, you solve it by staring at this. I don't need to hear that. That's not what I'm really needing right now. You understand, I'm discouraged. And that's what this book is about solving. Now, interestingly... There are two features here I want to draw our attention to throughout this letter. It's, it's a bit of a complicated letter 
because it introduces concepts to us that we don't know a whole lot about. It draws the work of Christ out of things like the priesthood and the sacrificing of animals, blood being shed, altars. And we don't know a whole lot about that. It's not common to our practice in life. But yet, the writer in this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knew that your faith would be most affected and strengthened by what I'm going to draw our attention to, three elements today that are in this letter that are going to strengthen faith. The first one is our faith being affected by the work of Christ, our priest. Jesus Christ is our priest, our great high priest. We sang that in the song our only hope because he is our great high priest. Well, what on earth does that mean? Isn't that a great phrase? It's not if you don't know anything about it. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be our priest? Let's back up in Hebrews chapter 4. Remember, all this information is the running dialogue that leads up to consider him. Put your eyes on him. This This is what to consider about him. So we're getting filled in on the details of this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, there's a little construction here. I just want to hit this in passing. There's a a logic statement here in this passage. Since something is true, let us do something. That's the logic of this passage. By the way, that's basic discipleship 101. It doesn't get any more simple than that. Since something is true, let us do X, Y, or Z. That's welcome to Christianity. The criticalness of knowing what is true and then doing something with it. Since we have this high priest... Let's hold fast. What's the reason for us to believe? Because we have a high priest. Well, my, my faith is waning. I'm being challenged to believe. Well, because we have this high priest, because of who he is, and because he is our high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Look in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Can you imagine someone who was never touched by sin? It's an amazing miracle. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen listen to the admonition that's here. See, this is the priestly role. The priest, all throughout the Bible, wherever a priest is presented, a priest is granted a unique access to God. If you want to find out what's unique about a priest, a priest has access to something. He's got access to God. So in the Old Testament, not everybody had access to God. Only the priest had a unique form of access to God. Jesus has become our great high priest. And because of the work that you and I, if you're, if you're a Christian, the Bible says you're actually in Christ. So you're actually in his priesthood. So his access to God now has become our access to God. So when one walks around discouraged, faint-hearted, faith is growing weak, 
This is a word of encouragement. You have access to God right now in your life. You have access to God. Can you imagine that? Don't be discouraged. Well, you know, remember the Bible says this. We studied for several weeks about the presence of God. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. Let's just do, let's just play doctor for a moment here. If I am discouraged, despondent, and despairing, those would not be equal to joy, would they? It would be very different experiences. What might I conclude about the presence of God being experienced in my life? If it's true that in your presence is fullness of joy, well, then I might be able to gauge my encounter with the presence of God by the degree of joy that's in my life. And if I am discouraged, downcast, then maybe what's really needing to get fixed is the presence of God in my life. But the great news here is if that's needing to get fixed, I have access to God. See, I'm not, you remember, Isaiah 59 is a, a, a verse that informs people, it informed me about a God that I didn't know. See, I, I always believed that God was accessible to everyone at all times. That's just somehow what I believed. And so the idea of standing and saying that you don't have access to God, to me, would have been ruffling my feathers. Maybe you're here this morning, you're going, what on earth are you talking about? Here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, why isn't God showing up and doing something then? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. It goes on and describes the life of man and how man has behaved. It is that sin that separates us from God. We are separated from God. And for God to come along and create a priesthood that creates an access to God, this is amazing news. No matter what you and I are facing, we have access to God, to the presence of God that brings joy. But not just to the presence of God that brings joy, but we have access to a throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. If you're discouraged and downcast, you're in a time of need. What great news to be launched into our hearts and to know I can access the throne of God's grace. Whatever it is that I really need in my life, God will give it to me. It's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of merit. It's not the Olympics. It's not the first three that get there first. It's limited time offer. It's none of that. It's a throne of grace that I can access and receive from God. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
that is. What, what should that do to my faith? I have the Son of God living before the throne of grace to make intercession for me right now in my hour of discouragement. He is making intercession for me. How many of us here believe that that could have any beneficial effect on my life? How many of you have ever asked somebody to pray for you? Did you think it would help? A little bit, yeah. What about if you knew that the Son of God, who always gets his, his prayers answered, prayed for you? Would that maybe make you feel like something could be going your way? I can't lose sight of these things. These things are the basis for encouragement. The, the, the work of Christ as my priest before the throne of God's grace needs to mean something to me. And it says that, that he is a high priest... He is able to save to the uttermost, uttermost salvation. A salvation that doesn't have an ending to it. A salvation that's not lacking. It's a salvation guaranteed that goes on forever and it is full and complete. Now, what if I really believe that? Well, you know, I feel like my faith is just, it's, on, it's teetering. It's on the, I, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. Well, this says you're going to be saved to the uttermost. Is there any way for you to possibly really believe both of these things at the same time? I'm going to be saved to the uttermost, but I just don't know if I'm going to make it. Right? One of those is being forfeited for the sake of the other one, isn't it? I mean, that's the reality. So I am, I am here doubting the very work of Christ. Listen, the work of Christ gives me access to God. You have access to God if you're in Christ today. Second strengthening element in this letter is our faith affected by the work of Christ, our sacrifice. And we get into all these images here in Hebrews about animals being slain and blood being shed. What on earth is all that about? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11, transitioning from this role of priest now into you know, different than the priests. Remember, the priests in the Old Testament gave offerings. They took the lamb. There was the priest, and then there was the lamb. When you come into the book of Hebrews, you find the priest and the lamb are the same. So the work of Christ, he is both the, the high priest who offers, and he's also that which is offered. So it's a unique dynamic about who he is. Verse 11, Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. In other words, not like the tabernacle was. This is the heavenly realities. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, what Jesus' blood purchased was an eternal Redemption. Can you, can you get a little bit of encouragement out of that? You have been redeemed and brought back to God with an eternal redemption. The blood that Jesus Christ spilled to pay for our sins, it doesn't have a point where it wears out. Unlike the system in the Old Testament that year after year required them to come back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And the Bible says in Hebrews here, I don't think we'll get to read all this, but in this little section of nine, Hebrews 9 and 10, 
uh, there was a reminder each year of their sin and their separation from God because they had to go back and do it again. We've got to offer it again. We've got to offer it again. And if you grew up in that system, you remembered every year this offering proclaims your guilt. Every year it does. It reminds you of your sinfulness. But yet when you come into Christ in the New Testament, that reminder goes away. Because now what he did once and for all will never be done again. There will never be any blood offered again. It's an eternal redemption. For if, verse 13, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. Remember the Old Testament, they sprinkled the blood on the people. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise, the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death has occurred. Listen, one of the reasons why there's many people that are perhaps in this room today that are very discouraged is because your past haunts you. You just can't get over what you've done, what's been done to you, and how you've responded, and living in the wake of those decisions. You try and figure out how to justify it, how to get, how to get it off of you, how to get this thing off of me. Of course, the number one way to get it off of you is just blame somebody else. Right? I mean, it's completely understandable why I did this and that. Because this person did this, and then this went on in my life. And I was raised this way. Everybody else is to blame for this. Now, in reality, probably all those situations occurred. And there was a great deal of sin that came to your life and visited you and touched your life. But can I just rescue you from something? You'll never get it off of you that way. Try as much as you want. Here's what you do. You start off just kind of justifying it by considering the ideas. People have done wrong to me, and I ended up doing wrong. And see, eventually that won't work. And so you're going to need to add fuel to that. And then you're going to become, people did wrong to me. That's why I did what I did. And now you're going to start considering what you did. And the weight of what you did becomes a crushing weight in your life. And the only remedy you have is people did me wrong. That's why I did what I did. And I, if, I, if they hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have done that. Now you're really ticked off, aren't you? Now you're a person who's going to walk through life angry and bitter and like a time bomb waiting to go off. Why? Because you did something wrong and you blamed it on others and you can't get it off of you. Listen, can you, can you listen here? Listen to what Jesus Christ, his work does for you. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? You want to get it off of you? Let it get washed off. How does that get it off of me? I don't know. I don't know how tide works either, but it just does. 
I mean, I've seen the commercials. I know little bubbles and things float off, but I don't understand. How does that really work? Somehow, my conscience can receive freedom from my own failings when the blood of Christ and his forgiveness washes over my life. But you're going to feel like you have a whole new life when, when the baggage of your past gets out of the everyday fire of your thoughts. What a liberty, what a joy can come now. How do you get that? By putting your faith in the work of Christ. See, understanding the atonement that cleanses my conscience. Oh, somebody needs to slip atonement books on the shelves in certain parts of the bookstores. People running from their past, trying to get over their discouragement and their their depression. I guarantee you, I haven't met too many people who are depressed who haven't figured out how to get rid of their past. It's a huge amount of that. It's not just their past, but it's the fact, and the Bible says this, each day's got enough trouble of its own. Now, probably what you think you're depressed about is what's going on right now. I mean, this is what's going on with me right now. I'm just so depressed. Well, probably what's made that be the straw that breaks the camel's back is all the other baggage that's loaded on your back that you're carrying through life. Until you get to today, which does have enough trouble of its own. Oh, but for you you got today's trouble and 38 years' worth of trouble all together sitting on you. Well, how do you get rid of that? By putting your faith in the work of Christ, whose blood can cleanse your sins and remove them all, and who then gives you access to God as the priest in whom we now find our access to God. No longer cut off. See, one of the issues that, that is in us that, that has to be dealt with is, is our own need of forgiveness. Right? You turn a little bit. Turn to, to Hebrews 10. Turn over one chapter there. Hebrews 10, verse 11. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service. This is referring to the, the way in which the Old Testament priest operated. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember all those animals that were killed in the Old Testament? For different sins against God, and different ones were required, and different ones were offered. They can never take away sins. Oh, they, they temporarily, it's kind of like, like getting a credit extension. It's sort of like, uh, maybe, we don't get the sacrifice thing, but how many of you guys know what a credit card is? Right, year after year, you'd go in and swipe your credit card. Next year, and all your sins would add up. You'd swipe your credit card. Well, you know, when you when you went to go swipe it, you already had a balance. It was last year's balance, and the year before that, and the year before that, and you walked up and you swiped it one more time, and the bill collectors began to come. Of course, the bill collectors, God, and here he comes. And once again, this year, I get to swipe my credit card. Got God off me for one more year. One more year. And then the next year comes and you swipe it again. Does it pay the bill? No, it just piles your debt up higher and higher and higher. Want to see the big difference between the Old Testament sacrifice and the New Testament? Remember, John the Baptist looks up and he sees Jesus coming from a distance and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
right? I mean, if you're a visa person, behold the Lamb of God who pays the balance off completely. Now, all of us can get this. If you get a real high credit card debt issue right now in your life, you're probably like, hey, that's cool. That's cool. Really? Jesus Christ pays credit cards? <laughs> yeah, he does. He pays the biggest tab you could possibly ever owe. And he pays the balance down to zero. And then he pays for all the other screw-ups you're going to do between now and the end of your life as well. So what a different thing that, that is here in this work of Christ. But when Christ had offered for all time, verse 12, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That, if you wanted to just meditate on one passage that could twist your mind and really fill your heart, that would be it. A one-time event that Jesus Christ did made perfect everyone who is in him who is now being changed by the Spirit of God. Isn't that, isn't that amazing news? You're perfect before God. By one act of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ. Now, now bring that good news to your life. How many of us, when we face discouragement and problems, we feel like we've got to ramp up with God? Oh, I haven't had a good week this week. I've been yelling at everybody, and I've been mad, and uh, I haven't paid my tithes, and I haven't been reading my Bible. You know, what, what on earth is all that? It's us trying to ramp up our resume so that God will feel okay with us. I thought this passage meant something. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who now have access to the throne of God's grace. You have access. You don't earn access to the throne of God's grace. You don't have to have a good week this week to have access to the throne of God's grace. But if you think you do, it's one more step to keep you away from God. Just one more thing. Because you just don't feel like you can go, so you don't go. And then one week turns into another week, bad turns into worse. The rest of this. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, then he adds, listen, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Can you wrap your mind around that? The, the actual language there of the Bible, the original language, actually says God will not call to mind your sins in order to reward you accordingly. He will not call them to mind. Oh, no, I know you and I are calling them to mind. Stop it. <laughs> What's the remedy for that? I don't know what to tell you. Don't do that. It's a waste of time. Oh, but it feels so right. To accuse me. and You know what that is most of the time? It's you and I shopping for an excuse to stay away from God. If you're theologically informed about much at all. And you're wasting your time running around thinking, Oh, I've done this. How could God possibly? Well, go read your Bible and find out how he could possibly. Not only could he possibly, he could amazingly bring you before him and welcome you. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Is forgiveness a done deal or is it not? 
if it's a done deal, if the work of Christ as the, as the substitute offering for us has brought to our lives forgiveness, is there anything that you are going to be able to do to add to forgiveness? Did, did he bring us most of the forgiveness? We're mostly forgiven. Now, come on, you got to do just you just got to do a little bit. The great thing about Christianity is Jesus Christ has done 99% and you only got to do your 1%. Do you find that in the Bible anywhere? Matter of fact, you find the exact opposite. You find God is offended by the idea that you are going to try and do anything to add to what his son did because in doing it, you are declaring his son's work wasn't enough. What Christ did completely forgives us. Do you know you can stand here this morning knowing I am completely forgiven? washed and cleaned in my conscience of all that's gone wrong in the past. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean it hasn't affected other people. But in my own heart before God, I know that it's not an issue between God and me anymore. He doesn't hold that out. He doesn't pull it out like a trump card and say, oh, listen, you know I want to help you out, but you remember, I mean, you're digging yourself out of a big old hole. I mean, most people are jerks, but you, <laughs> that's not how God's dealing with us. That's the work of Christ. See, to be a Christian is to put your faith in the work of Christ. Look at this third one. This third one's going to mess us up. (laughs) The third encouragement in this letter is faith affected by the work of Christ in satisfying God. Now, you're going to have to think carefully with me here because... We live in a theological cave in in this world right now. We are so far from the surface that that we have to dig our way out of issues like this. And so for a moment here, many of you here, I'm just telling you, you're not going to like this point at all. It'll take you a little while to even warm up to it. I'll try and serve it up slowly. (laughs) Let me ask this question. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus Christ die? Just yesterday's Good Friday, many folks recognize his death. Why did he die? Well, he died because of the sins of man. Yeah, it's partly right. He died to redeem us. Yeah, what does that mean? Redemption, it means to buy back. Okay? Ransom. He ransomed us. We sing songs about that. All right? Who did he pay the ransom to? Well, the devil, of course. Oh, really? This is a very popular thought, by the way. Theologically, it has been in certain points in church history that God paid a ransom to the devil. Can anybody find that for me, biblically, real quick? Does it fit with what we know about the devil? Do you remember who the devil is? The devil is an angelic being, one of many, worshiping before God. Pride rises up in his heart. He decides to rebel against God and lead others in this rebellion. God exercises his authority, kicks him out of heaven, and gives the devil permission to operate and live and exist on planet earth given permission by god to do that so this devil is a being spiritual in nature who lives on planet earth 
Can anybody find anywhere where he's owed anything? He's a rebel and a liar. Oh, he is owed something. I'm sorry. He's owed punishment for that. Can anybody find anywhere in the Bible where he is owed the Son of God's life? It's just completely unbiblical concept. But the answer, the alternative to the devil being owed for some of us feels worse. Because if the devil's not owed a ransom, then who's owed? We're running out of players here, aren't we? Man? Anybody here got paid for this? Is man being paid the ransom? No, there's only one player left. And it's God himself. God is owed the ransom. The price that was set is set by God. And sometimes we inherit things that are just in motion, so we just accept them the way they are. Did you ever stop for a second? Who set the price? Why wasn't it just enough that some innocent little bleeding lamb, let him die? That's good enough. Come on. Who set the price that it would take the Son of God and his life to pay it? Was it the devil? Absolutely not. It was God. Do you want to know why Jesus Christ died? I think I put this in your outline. Because of the severe demands of God's righteousness and God's love. That's why Jesus Christ died. Because of the severe demands of the righteousness of God and the love of God. And you can't have one without the other. Righteousness demanded death as a penalty for sin. Righteousness demanded that. Love demanded that Christ take the penalty. And if you do away with either one of them, you do away with the cross. If righteousness doesn't demand such a payment for, penalty, for the penalty of sin, well, then the cross is unnecessary. It's only because there is a demand from God that that occur, that it has to occur. Now, if love doesn't demand on the Son of God to offer himself as a sacrifice, well, then all we have is punishment without hope. So you need both of these elements. But it's important for us to appreciate something, and quite honestly, a huge element of this entire book is written with this as the foundation for all that's here. I started off the meeting asking you, what's the most difficult situation or thing that you've ever faced in your life? I'm not sure what you wrote down. How many of you put God? See your hands. Do you know God is the most difficult situation and thing you've ever faced in your life? God is. See, when we use words like salvation, right? you're saved. Oh, I'm saved. Oh, really? Saved from what? From the devil? Yeah, that's true. The power of sin? Mm-hmm. True as well. Saved from the corruption of our flesh forever? Yeah. True as well. Just not the greatest truth. The greatest truth in the Bible, what is it that we are saved from, is when we come to realize the Bible describes us as God's enemy. 
while we were his enemies, God loved us. While we were his enemies. How many of us have ever thought the idea that we were God's opponent? See, again, we're in a cave theologically these days because we only want to feel good. And so we create these ideas that God is always and always has been. He's always been for us. He's for everybody. He's always for us. God considered us his enemies at one point. The greatest obstacle that had to be overcome for you and I to be in relationship with God was God himself. The demands of righteousness. So listen, it wasn't the devil. and It wasn't our sin. It was the righteousness of God himself that was the barrier to him embracing us in our sin. Look in Romans. Put these passages in your outline. Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. When we say we're saved, saved from what? I'm saved from hell. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the pouring out of the wrath of God. And I, I, don't, I don't nearly have time to unpack this, but can I just get that pouring idea in your mind? Pouring all over the Old Testament, all over the Bible, it depicts the anger and wrath of God as being poured out. It, it's not an eyedropper. It's not a little piece of it. It's, it's a pouring out. It's a cup that's full and it's emptied. Now, if you're an eternal God who is eternally angry and hostile towards sin, how long will it take you to pour out your wrath? It'll take you forever. So you create a place called hell where the wrath of God never stops being poured out into it. And those who are on the receiving end never stop receiving the wrath of God. So when you are saved, understand, hell is not just some place that exists apart from anything about God. Hell is terrible. Oh, how could God possibly be involved in hell? Well, if he's not involved with hell, where did it come from? The devil? Get get Dante's images out of our head. The devil doesn't sit on a throne in hell. The devil soaks up the heat with everybody else. The devil receives the wrath of God himself personally for the rest of his life. He's not in charge of anything. He's not telling the other demons how to go over there and torture somebody else like the demons down there are on, are on some kind of a vacation or they're in charge. And the poor people down there are suffering. Hell was created in order to punish the devils. And man ended up there as well. It is the expression of the wrath of God. That's what hell is. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, listen, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Listen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Can you you just look in that passage right there and see something that's very interesting? What is the right response to ungodliness and unrighteousness if you're God? Not if you're us, if you're God. What's the right thing to do? 
It's in that passage. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The right response of God is revealed in the gospel. The wrath of God poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's the right thing for God to do. Now stay with me for a moment because I know right now you're, you're not liking what you're hearing perhaps. John Stott, very helpful. He says, closely related to God's holiness is his wrath, which is in fact his holy reaction to evil. We certainly cannot dismiss it by saying that the God of wrath belongs to the Old Testament, while the God of the New Testament is love. For God's love is clearly seen in the Old Testament, as is his wrath in the New. Right? We stay right here in, John chapter, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. Look in verse 26. This is a New Testament saying. This is God being depicted. Whether you're standing in the Old Testament to depict God or you're standing in the New Testament to depict God, you're still talking about the same God. It's not two different gods. Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is not referring to some Old Testament situation. This is referring to those who reject the work of Christ on their behalf. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? Punishment. Look at the word choices. Do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Can you just underline that phrase? This will, this will help us. Did you know you can outrage the spirit of grace? Doesn't that just mess up your ideas about grace? Huh? Grace was drippy, sweet honey. Didn't know the spirit of grace could get outraged and become furious and flaming and punishing. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That was true in the Old Testament. It is still true today. It is a terrible and fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God who is so righteous. And we are so sinful. This is a serious, serious issue. How is it that we so easily dismiss this great obstacle? How have we come to think that the biggest difficulties in our lives lie somewhere else? The devil, sickness, bills to pay, promising future, a relationship. Why, why do we think those things are the biggest challenges of our lives? What has happened here that we have misplaced the fact that the greatest work of all that Christ did, and we receive so many benefits of what he has done. Right? We, we, we have bodies that, that we we're going we're to receive in heaven that will have no sickness, will no longer suffer, and there will be no tears in heaven. We, we have right now a taste of that and receiving healing in our bodies. We have grace from God in so many immeasurable ways, but the greatest thing that the cross did for us, 
It was to assuage the righteousness of God that demanded a response to sin. You know, I don't have an adequate category to put this in. God responds to evil. He responds to sin. It's, it's like it's part of his being to be that way. It's not just something he does. God just doesn't get ticked off. It's, it is a holy reflex to evil. I don't even know what to liken it to. It's almost as though if I filled this room with enough of a stench, your physical body would gag. You wouldn't sit there and go, hmm, that smells bad. I think I'll gag. You know, you, you wouldn't predispose yourself to gag. It would be your response to it. Oh, it, just, it would just come out of you. God's response to evil and sin is like that. There's something about the character of God that evil demands, and his gag reflex is to pour out completely his righteousness to swallow that thing up. It's who God is. Again, John Stott says, How, people ask, can we possibly believe that God needed some kind of satisfaction before he was prepared to forgive? And that Jesus Christ provided it by enduring as our substitute the punishment we sinners deserved. Are not such notions unworthy of the God of the biblical revelation? A hangover from primitive superstitions, indeed, frankly, immoral? Listen, this, this is awkward to digest, isn't it? Isn't there something inside of you that wants to kind of say something like, listen, listen, that's not the God that I love. The God that I love is good. Stop right there for a second. The God that we love is good. The problem with us saying that is that our idea about good isn't good enough. God is good. We just don't mean he is perfectly holy and good and righteous. We just mean he's a little better than we are. And if God is good, like, no, we're decent, he's good, and he's an improved version of us, then when we consider how he responds to sin, we kind of can't go there. We're not comfortable with this idea. God is furious. God responds with anger and wrath against sin. Well, that just seems to be an overreaction, doesn't it? Is it an overreaction or is it the right reaction? Remember, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You, you understand that it is this wrath and fury that kills his son. Why did Jesus Christ die? Because the wrath of God was poured out on him. That's why he died. Oh, now he was there because our sins required payment. All those things are true. But the reason why the Son of God dies on the cross is because the wrath of God is visited on him rather than being visited on us. And what's an interesting thing here, and I'm going to resist tracing some of these thoughts. If you have an infinite cup, Peter alluded to this last week, if you have an infinite cup of wrath, you have two options here. You either pour it on something that's infinite or you pour it out infinitely. Now here's your only solutions to the wrath of God. The Son of God, who is himself God, so therefore he is infinite as well, who can absorb an infinite pouring out of the wrath of God for our sin, or hell, where the wrath of God continues to be poured out forever. See, the problem before man is the wrath of God. That is the problem before man. 
the solutions available are the Son of God and His work or hell. And that's it. John Stott says, There is something in God's essential moral being that is provoked by evil and ignited by it, proceeding to burn until the evil is consumed. But this is, this is who God is. Habakkuk said, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. See, the, when you push good to its extreme, you end up with a good that begins to oppose evil. See, somewhere where, where good lives right next door to evil, which is where you and I live, we tolerate evil. We adjust for it. We're sort of it in some ways. But when you're perfect God and good gets to its extremely perfect condition, good opposes evil. When evil shows up, good is all over it to destroy it. That's how good is. And, and you know, you and I can barely even understand why that's a good thing. If good did not destroy evil, evil would ultimately destroy good. God destroys out of the goodness of who he is, so that evil never dominates the creation that he's made. And God, when it comes to wrong, when you are righteous, righteousness doesn't just tolerate wrong. You don't tolerate wrong. Right consumes wrong. So this is the very nature of who God is. I realize it may be that, that for some of us, that's a, those are foreign thoughts to us. And we're not comfortable with this this whole idea, this construct of, of God had to be satisfied. God had to be satisfied. Yeah. Can I ask you this question? Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you don't believe the Bible is the truth, well, then you're, you're, there's your answer. You can just kind of say, well, I, I don't agree with you because I don't even agree with the Bible. But if I do believe the Bible is the truth, can you explain the letter of Hebrews without saying what I just said? Where did the priesthood come from? And the sacrificial system. Where did that come from? The devil? Man made it up. No, God instituted it. God instituted it in order to show people, I will give the priest access because your sin has excluded you from access to me. I will give the priest access, which is an act of grace. But ultimately, it's just a temporary picture for you to realize one day your access to me will come through my own son who will be priest. And if you want forgiveness, then blood will have to be shed. A life will have to be given in order for forgiveness to be granted. Where did these ideas come from? God requires that? Yes, he does. And, and if we begin to question that, we, we have to tear the whole letter of Hebrews out of the Bible. Now, how does that have to do with where we started? We started off saying we're, we're discouraged. Matt, Matt, I'm sorry. Go ahead and come on, man. We're discouraged. We're despondent. We're despairing. We're, we're lack. Our faith is waning. What does this have to do with, with motivating me? Why does this help me right now in my discouragement? Well, because of this. You never faced a bigger problem in your life than the one that got solved by the work of Jesus Christ, ever. 
There was never a worse day for any of us on the planet than the day that God was against us. Oh, and he was. Because of our sin. And there was nothing you and I could do. You couldn't save for it. You couldn't go out and get two jobs to fix it. You couldn't go find a doctor who could inject you with something. There was no operation that could get performed. There was no words that you could say to that person that, I'm sorry, to fix it. There was nothing that you or I could do to get us out of the worst predicament our life has ever been in. And yet we're out of it. We're out of it. By the grace of God. Is there anything that I can face in my life right now, whether it's the seizing of property, uh, whether it's just feeling discouraged, whether things aren't going my way, whether I'm losing relationships or my health, is there anything in my life too difficult for God who could overcome that problem? No. Now, I know, I know to some degree this is Maybe for some. For many, it's, it's just the Bible, and that makes sense. But for many, it's awkward. Do you remember? This, this, this is all over the Bible. Do you remember the Son of God telling people? Matthew chapter 10, think about verse 38. Do not fear those who can kill the body only. Fear him who can both kill body and damn soul in hell. Did you know the Bible tells you to be afraid of God? Not just a little afraid. Very afraid. I'm not trying to be the, the church freak show here today, okay? But, you know, if you read the letter of Hebrews and you have blood being sacrifice and a priest having to be there you know all that stuff is there for a reason it all happened for a reason because god is so good and so righteous and because he is so good and so righteous there will never be a day when he will just look upon evil and say i didn't notice it's okay come on in there's a gag reflex in god he is going to respond to evil and he's either going to respond by taking the response that you deserve or that i deserve and putting it on his son Completely, He's going to, if you will, throw up the wrath of God all over his son. Or it's coming to me. It can't go anywhere else. What will, what will never happen is a cheap definition of a good God. Where God will become not that great, but just somewhat good. That'll never happen. That's never a remedy. It's never offered. Please don't buy into the idea that I, don't, I just don't feel like God's ever been against me. You're wrong. And I'm not making this up. I took a lot of time today to read a lot of scripture to us today. Because I want you to see. You know what's amazing? If you're here today and you're struggling with this, what's amazing is what's in this same letter is the free gift of God. God, God can stand. And I know there's some here today who you will respond this way to this. You will hear this and it will be antagonistic information for you, period. Why you have a God who says, I will pour out my wrath. For you, I'll pour out on my son. Do you accept that? I can't believe a God would do something like that. That's just ridiculous. You can't believe a God would be that gracious to you? The same God who's going to furiously punish his son is going to give you the grace and the benefit you don't deserve. Can you believe that? 
See, this is the gospel. I don't know what's going to be preached all over the city tomorrow. But this is the gospel. The man on that cross is there because he has to be there. The righteousness of God demanded his life. And the only reason why he responded is because he had to be there. Because the enormity of his love compelled him to go and do it for us. This isn't a two-headed God. This is, this is a God who is all of this together at once. If you're here today, maybe you didn't know that because of your own sin, God, God's anger and response is coming. It is coming. Today he tells you, would you let my son pay for you? I sent him to do that. I am angry against sin. and I will punish all of it. I will punish yours. I will either punish it in your possession or I will punish it in his. And if you'll give your life to my son, all of it, completely, without reservation, trust yourself to him. Here's what faith means. Putting your trust and your faith and your life into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. It means completely saying to him, God, I'm yours. You, son of God, who was God, who came to this earth to receive the punishment of God from my sin. I do believe in you. And I believe in what you did. You offered your life so that mine wouldn't be taken in punishment. If you're here today, let me just ask everybody to bow their heads for a moment. If you're here today and and you want to respond to God, maybe you've known a lot of these things for much of your life. and Maybe you've had a knowledge about God and you've known stories about God and Easter has always had elements of the cross in it. Have you ever surrendered your life to this God who sent his son in your place? Have you ever told him, God, I put all my hope, all my trust in what your son did for me. He took my place. He gave his life for me. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Today, God, I want you to know I give my life to you. I surrender it to you. I trust you. If you want to do that, then put that into words. Tell God that. Tell it to him right now. He doesn't have a hearing problem, so he doesn't need you to yell. But he does need you to acknowledge. He does need you to speak. He needs you to look him in the face right now. And in your own way, tell him, I trust you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for washing away my past. Thank you for coming and suffering and receiving what I will never understand. The fullness of a holy, mighty God's fury against sin. I will never 
I will never know what that was. much more than simply some concept of hell in my mind. You have saved me from something so terrible. And instead you've replaced it with only that which is truly good. You've given me access to you every day of my life forever. A cleansed conscience and heart. No matter what challenge I'm facing today, Lord, there was never a greater difficulty in my life than the day that you opposed me in my sin. And yet today, Lord, I stand forgiven. And that opposition is ended. And me who was once your enemy is now called your friend and your child. What a change. God, today, thank you. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you for who you are. We trust you. You are our hope. Oh, Lord, our life is full of hope. Our future, full of joy. Lord, how could we ever be worried about tomorrow? Situations more complicated than we ever had imagined. You have solved them already. Will you not, Lord, who have given your Son, freely also give us all things? Yes, Lord, yes, you will. So, Lord, thank you for reminding us today and in this book why our faith should be strong and we should remain confident. Let's stand up and sing together in closing. My name is Raven.